This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. Scott Abrams held leadership positions at the Open Society Foundations for over a decade. As part of the Local Government and Public Service Reform Initiative, he designed and oversaw hundreds of projects around the world focused on decentralization, citizen participation, good governance, and local economic development. Prior to that, he worked at the Department of Peacekeeping Operations at the United Nations and in the private sector. Today, Scott advises donor agencies, private foundations, universities, chambers of commerce, and nonprofit organizations on strategy formulation, management, advocacy, and communications. I spoke with Scott in Budapest, Hungary. Hi, Scott. Thanks so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Thanks, Stephen, for having me. Can you tell us what it is that you're doing right now? How, how are you adding value to your clients as an independent consultant right now? Currently, I am uh, freelancing, so I'm working for over 15 clients, um, ranging from the large-scale World Bank types of organizations uh, all the way down to some grassroots civic groups uh, in small countries like Albania and Kosovo. Um, so quite a gamut of organizations. Adding value, um, I tend to get called back by my clients regularly. I find it's interesting. I used to work in management in a large global foundation, and it's it's much harder, I would say, to fire somebody than it is to simply not rehire somebody. So when you're an independent consultant, you have to add value consistently. Otherwise, you simply just won't be called back for the next job. I've raised uh, in the last year, I don't know, close to $20 million for some of the organizations that I've, I've done fundraising for. I've rewritten uh, entire strategies for organizations that have revamped the way in which they, they do advocacy, the way in which they communicate. I've built almost from scratch a global environmental movement that's now underway, coming from Budapest, but actually operational in 56 countries. All, all sorts of stuff. I mean, the range is big, big because I work on so many different types of projects right now. I was going to say, you, you have just put such a broad spectrum of work on the table. I don't even know where to start. How do you, how do you, let, let's just start with a simple question. How do you go about selling that? You, you walk up with your business card and say, hi, I'm Scott. I can do anything. Or how, well, what, no, that um, no I, I've actually never auditioned for work yet because I, I started this consultancy um, gig as it were, after having worked sort of in the industry at fairly senior levels for over a decade. So People knew me. Every single job I've ever had since um, I I went independent has been by word of mouth. So I've never, I mean, actually, I spend more time turning down projects than I do looking for for projects. That's the holy grail. You know, you were working for the Open Society Institute for, as you said, for more than a decade. Before we dive into what that work was like, what was the moment? Why Why did you decide to go independent? Why? Well, actually, I didn't decide to. It decided for me. The The program that I worked for, it was a large program. It was about twenty, you know, $18 million a year, a staff of some 20. Um, it closed. Um, the, the program had been set up to foster and facilitate decentralization and good governance largely in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. And as the foundation that I worked for changed its uh, sort of focus on topical areas and geographical areas, our program no longer was sort of at the forefront of activity anymore, and they decided to discontinue it. So 
I for actually the, the program winded down and uh, I went off to South America for a few months to uh, write a book, which I'll publish sometime later this year, hopefully. And while I was down there, I was sort of just, you know, tinkering with ideas of what to do. And one of my former clients, uh, sorry, former partners uh, called me and asked if I could work with his team in Kosovo to uh, build a new four-year strategy to raise a few million dollars. And I said, sure, I could do that when I get back from Colombia. And that's how it all started. <laughs> so again, you, yeah. you've just you've just described that serendipitous, oh, you know, I got fired or the program closed. So I went and wrote a book and then now I'm working. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, I mean, sometimes in retrospect, things look, uh, you know, turn out really well. But at the time, you know, it was, it was stressful. I loved it. I loved the previous job. It was fantastic. And we were doing great work. Maybe I could tell you a little bit about that throughout this conversation. But, uh, you know, things turned out well like this, too. Yeah. Tell, tell us, can, can you give us a sneak preview? What, what's the book about or what is it called? Well, the book is fiction. Um, oh, okay. The book is a, uh, it's a historical novel aimed at children 8 through 12 and adults. So very distinct and different from my from the rest of my career, let's say. Okay. But I had written, you know, I had, I had written a, a movie script which got bought by a Spanish production company, also fiction. So, you know, I always feel it's sort of, I spend most of my time writing for development agencies and for governments, and it's nice to take a pause from that sometimes and get creative. So it sounds like writing has been not only a part of your career for the you know, past 15 years or so, but it's also been a passion. Is that, you know, how did you find yourself in the development space as a professional? I know that you you pursued a, a different career for a little while before you uh, went into development and was writing a big part of that? No. Basically, um, I, I grew up with a, a family business. My grandfather had started a gourmet market uh, in New York. My father took it over and it was my destiny to take it over from my father. I spent 15 years working at the market. But since I was a kid, I always sort of dreamed about seeing the world. And I wouldn't mind to have been paid to go see it. Um, I used to read the almanac from cover to cover from the age of, let's say, seven years old every year, thinking, you know, checking if anything changed in the world. Which almanac? The the globe, the, the world almanac. Oh, like the world almanac. Okay, great. Yeah, it was like a thousand pages, you know, each year, facts and figures about all the countries and stuff like that. Um, statistics. And I used to just read that with enthusiasm each year. And uh, so I always wanted to have some kind of international career. And, you know, before you know too much about what kind of careers are out there, the obvious one is the UN. It was sort of on my radar forever, but, you know, I, I had no way of getting in there. I had zero background in, in development studies or, or international affairs. And I was working at the time. Uh, I was on a train. And five minutes before my stop in, in New York, in Westchester County, I sat down and there was a lady next to me reading a document with the UN uh, logo on the top. And I said, if you don't mind me asking, you know, what do you do at the UN? And we got to talking. And six weeks later, I had a job at the UN. Wow. Uh, I started, I, I did three months as an editor in the press room, which was covering the General Assembly. This was 1999. And that ended. And I moved up to the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, where I was eventually offered posts in either Kosovo or East Timor, 
which were the big hot flashpoints in in the world in 1999-2000. I turned that down and, and I ended up going to graduate school at the time. But the message that I, that I would take away from this is be, a lot of people come to me for advice on on getting, you know, entering the, the development space. And I tell them, talk to everybody. You never know uh, who you're going to meet and where and when. And this is, I mean, th- that that moment on that train in those five minutes uh, have shaped everything I've done for the last over 20 years. That's amazing. Yeah. This, yeah. It, I would, and I'll just to, for feedback to you, that's, that's not an unusual story that, that we hear in terms of reference about, uh, you know, I was in, I just happened to be in a place at a time and I met someone um, and that's how this career got started. Um, it's, exactly. It's actually the rare occasion when somebody says, you know, I knew when I was 10 years old that I was, I was going to be doing this and the UN was where I was going, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So how how did the uh, you started at the UN? Uh, you went back to graduate school, and then uh, you spent essentially the next huge chunk of your career at the Open Society Institute. How did that come about? I got back to New. I studied in the UK, and I got back to New York on September eighth, two thousand and one. Great timing. And great timing, right? And I said to myself, I've just really you know spent a, a year studying hard, and I'm going to take a month and just relax, and then I'll start looking for a job. And that was, of course, uh, September 11th, three days later. And there was a period in New York where um, there was a lot of uncertainty, as you know, and people didn't seem to be in the hiring mood for some months after that. And I just started saying, okay, I'll look for an international job. Maybe I'll find something non-New York based. And I I got offered a three-month unpaid internship with the Soros Foundation in Budapest. And I had been to Budapest before, and I, and I liked it. And I said, this sounds like a bit of an adventure. And uh, I lined up a, a paid uh, – I, I edited a, a book on minority rights for the Central European University, which is uh, affiliated with the Soros Foundations here. So that paid for my whole internship. And after three months, somebody went on maternity leave, asked me to take her, her slot in the management roster for a year. When she came back, I applied for another position and basically developed my career out of there. So it was actually the department that I started off as an intern that I ended up directing six years, seven years later. So you worked your way up through the ranks, essentially. Yeah. It, you, you, you had mentioned specifically you'd like to talk about that work. What, what was so intriguing? What was so fantastic about that work? Well, and, and, and things to a certain extent have changed because... Um, as any organization matures, I think it tends to get a little bit more bureaucratic and not as flexible as it once was. You know, with a live donor, um, you can make decisions very quickly and innovation is something that is appreciated. Whereas, let's say, something like the Ford Foundation um, or some of the, the more established foundations that have been around forever, they've set, they've set into their own ways. So George Soros was sort of, you know, in his very active prime, actually, he still is very, very involved on a day-to-day basis uh, with the foundations. But we were able to react to to good ideas very quickly. And somebody could call me from a country and propose something a little off the wall. And if we liked the idea, we could readily invest in it and, you know, be involved to a a fairly good extent. So it made for an exciting career. And that's every every reason why I didn't want to go back to the UN, because as a, you know, there's plenty of good reasons to go to the UN, but the ability to feel that you yourself are making a difference and you yourself are controlling some of the things that you work on uh, is very hard to find at the UN, at least until you get to an extremely senior level. And even then it's, it's, it's a challenge. So 
One of the things I worked on extensively was participatory planning at the city level in countries basically from Albania all the way out to Mongolia. And this may sound kind of jejun from a Western perspective where, you know, a city in the U.S. is going to work together, obviously, on its um, economic plan with the business community, with the with the civic groups, with the media, etc. But that kind of stuff doesn't really happen outside of certain countries. So it was really novel to bring together different portions of the community to work together to elaborate how the city, sh- how their how their own cities should develop over years. Just a quick anecdote: I, I was once leading a training session. And I said to a group of deputy mayors and finance directors from a city, you know, there was a famous mayor in New York, Mayor Koch, back in the 80s, who would go out to the streets once in a while and ask, how am I doing? Which, of course, could be a dangerous thing in New York in the 80s. But I asked them, you know, do do your mayors ever go out to the business community and, you know, get some feedback on how they're doing? And there was like a deafening silence in the room. And one brave deputy mayor raises his hand and he says, you're asking, you you mean checking on their own businesses, right? So there was no sense of engaging your own business sector in your development of your towns. Anyway, we, we worked for years with, with, with cities. And now that I've visited many of them many years later, it's incredible to see the impact, the results, the tangible stuff you could see that has changed. And you go back 10 years into those strategy documents and you see the seeds of all of that happening And, you know, that kind of stuff is very rewarding in this field. Let's take that particular project you're talking about right there. Were you, you mentioned that you had the funds, you were the one who sort of was in the driver's seat about deciding how those funds were going to be used. And then if I can take it from your anecdote, you were actually there helping to implement as well. Did I get that right? Uh, largely, yes. So we tended to do all of our work through and with local partners. Unlike, for example, some of the big bilaterals, we didn't tend to invest heavily in in international experts, which would cost you a fortune to fly in and fly out and put in nice hotel rooms and pay enormous salaries and all that kind of stuff. So when I set up some of these types of projects, what I would do is I would go to countries. My first few visits would be to select the local partners that would do all the work and then train them as necessary, sometimes with supplementary expertise from abroad. And then they would coach the cities on processes so a lot of a lot of what we did in the example that that we just spoke about was more of setting a framework around which communities could do self-assessments, economic self-diagnosis, try to flesh out their competitive advantages, all this type of stuff which would then lead the community to be able to establish its priorities, budgetary uh, priorities, and all of that kind of stuff. Then we, we, some of the communities that that really did well, like you know, five, six hundred people from a city participating for a couple of years to work on these types of things, we would invest in subsequently. For example, with we we would we would work with civic groups to monitor the implementation of those plans. We would work with some of the city governments to, if they wanted to focus, for example, on tourism, to help them with some technical advisors for tourist development, all sorts of stuff. I mean, it varied tremendously from country to country, city to city. And so your particular job was building the capacity of these local implementers to then carry out the work? Yes. Yes. How did you... I did some direct training as well, but yeah, that, that's the mainstay of it, yeah. Uh, okay. So how did you then, over, again, just sort of looking at this particular project, how did you go about 
measuring your success over the short term. You said that you've gone back now a decade later and seen the, the fruits of the labor, but was there a way that you were saying, we know we're on the right track? Yes. Like I said, so that, that particular example, it, it was a lot of process. So we were trying to create a new way of doing business, as it were, in communities. So for the first time, the government wouldn't only view businesses as a source of way to generate revenue, and the businesses wouldn't only look at rev- uh, government as a predatory entity that would come seeking to get every cent they can from, from, from the businesses, and that the government should engage with community members who have different interests around certain topics. So we were trying to recreate um, the way in which communities functioned. And that kind of stuff, for the most part, you could see because all of a sudden there was town hall meetings around around these uh, development plans. There was lots of consultation back and forth between all parties. So that that was kind of measurable. What what wouldn't be measurable in the short term, mainly, would be the infrastructure outcomes that we could see down the road, the the health of the of the financial conditions of the city. And whether or not that would be sustained over time. So would there be some kind of process akin to what I described, you know, six, eight, ten years down the road? These are the kinds of things, some things you could measure right away and some things you'd have to wait for a long time. Mm-hmm. Within that work uh, at the Open Society or within the work that you're doing right now, is there anything that jumps to the top of your mind right now about a surprising or unintended outcome that that you've seen where you said, wow, you know, we... We thought we were working on this, but here's a, you know an unintended side effect or something super that came out of it instead. I used to run a policy fellowship program, which would train uh, over the course of a year budding policy entrepreneurs how to write effective policy papers, how to do effective advocacy, how to make effective policy presentations. And there was a girl from the uh, from Ukraine who was at the time studying at the London School of Economics. And we attached her to a mentor in Brussels who was a leading think tanker there. And she wrote a very innocent sounding paper called uh, A Deep and Free Trade Agreement Between the EU and Ukraine. She subsequently, years later, went on to direct a big think tank in Ukraine, which advanced this idea further. And she then went on to work for some very prestigious Brussels-based think tanks that continue to advance the idea. And ultimately, Ukraine signed on to the idea. And it was that single idea, really, that sparked the entire crisis that we see now in Ukraine. Because if you recall from, from a few months back, it was, signing of, it was signing the Deep and Free Comprehensive Trade Agreement that uh, sparked all the people to, to rush out to the Maidan and protest Yanukovych's reversal. Of that, and so now you're officially, you know, basically putting it no, on, I on mean, tape. You're I saying mean, you was, started the revolution. I'm no, I mean, like, I'm not <laughs> saying in any sense that any one person had a monopoly on that idea. But it's interesting. I mean, in, in, just thinking back on all of that, how, how, you know, that <laughs> there's something in there. <laughs> it, that's the you know the butterfly wing flapping, right? That's amazing. And and to be able to look back and see that work cascade and grow and mature and evolve to become something that's that, that's profound effect yeah there's always stuff like that well then let me ask you another question i love to ask uh, here on, on terms of reference when have you failed can you remember a time when you were working on an initiative or you've been you know maybe as you've been an independent consultant where 
it just didn't work out or you made, you know, you invested the money and it just fell flat. And what did you do to turn that around or, or, or you know, make something of it? Well, look, if you read um, the reports that NGOs submit to donors and that donors um, and bilateral agencies put out about their accomplishments, you would assume there's no more problems left in the world. Everybody has true. So if, if people are being honest with themselves, most aid money will not result in the intended achievements. And it's very rare, I would say, even when it does. That doesn't mean that it's not doing other helpful things because, you know, in, in developing countries, a whole bunch of people are being employed uh, because with, through, through that use of the money. People are developing new skills, which then they may apply somewhere else. You never know. These things are impossible to track. At the same time, one can argue that they're distorting local markets and in, in a sense, there, some of it is not very helpful. For example, in, in a bunch of countries, you'll have somebody with a, an advanced degree, even, even in the sciences, acting as a driver for the United Nations Development Program because they pay better than what that person could make in the private sector. So aid work is, um, is, is a complex thing. And, 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 and I would say that, you know, using the, the ratio that I, that I just mentioned, most of what I've done has probably failed to a certain extent. And, and I think that's actually kind of fine to admit. All these things deal with societal change. And societal change happens very slowly, and it never happens within the time allotted for, for different, you know, projects sponsored by aid agencies. Um, things happen over, I mean, uh, systemic things happen over, you know, 20, 30, 50, 100 years and nobody has the patience for that because everybody's, you know, working on tight schedules and uh, annual budgetary allocations and all that kind of stuff. So I, I try to find that there's, you know, hopefully some things with each project improve the lives of some people. You know, you might, you might uh, produce a, a report on something. Here's an example. I worked with a guy. We sponsored this is actually back into the fellowship program that I mentioned before. We sponsored a paper on decentralization of education in Romania. And uh, it was a very smart paper. Um, and it was read by probably nobody, probably went right to a bookshelf. And it sat there. And a few years later, the government changed in Romania. All of a sudden, there was a government that uh, was interested in decentralizing its education system. And they, they did a search of who's written something about this, and there was like two papers on it, and this was one of them. And then all of a sudden, this paper was circulated throughout the entire new government and became sort of the backbone for the reforms. And this guy who wrote it was called, called in to advise the Minister of Education. So if you would have asked me the first few years, I would have said that was a failure. And a few years later, all of a sudden, that's a miracle paper. So, and, and, and there's all sorts of stuff like that. So, you know, there's that famous quote that somebody once asked somebody, um, I forget who, do you think that the French Revolution was, uh, was, was good for the world or not? And this is recently, and the person responded, it's too early to tell. <laughs> sure. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a big mix. There's some great things when you see people's lives impacted. And if you could allow me to actually infuse one other way of thinking about this. Absolutely. There's some organizations sponsor short, short-term fixes, okay? So, for example, Carlos Slim's foundation in Mexico once bought eyeglasses for every student in the country who couldn't uh, go to school because they couldn't afford 
eyeglasses and they needed them to see. Likewise, he bought the foundation bought bicycles for every student that lived more than an hour and a half walk from school. So this solved concrete problems instantly overnight. Some of the work of the Open Society Foundation, there was a $100 million emergency fund during the economic crisis a few years ago that did that kind of stuff. And I did an evaluation of the, the impact of that spending in Kyrgyzstan, in Kosovo, and Albania. And I mean, the, the, the projects that were funded and the people I met whose lives were impacted was incredible. But those are things that... Um, you know, they're, they're short-term fixes. They help people's lives tangibly. But, you know, once those eyeglasses break and once those bicycles are stolen or, or have a flat tire, that's the end of that. And that's it. And a lot of other donors, most of the work that I've worked on, looks at systemic change, looks at policy change. And the success rate that you can have with that kind of stuff, where you have to really shift ingrained societal tendencies is, is limited, but when it works, you have dramatic changes which can affect society for, for many, many years or decades. So they, they both offer something great, but they both have their limitations. And my feeling for this industry is that piecing those together wherever possible in space and in time can pay great dividends. And I don't see enough of that kind of work. Let's talk about a little bit about how, again, how you got to where you are from this sure. particular perspective, you talked about being on the train and having a conversation with a woman about the UN and you got the job, you know, the internship or whatever it was a few weeks later. And then after grad school, you found yourself in an internship with Open Society. And now you have clients who, as you say, you know, it's really referral based business. You're not out there really you know, banging the drum to, to win new work. What is it about you that help people to make the choice to bring you on board? Is it a skill set? Is it a particular oh, talent? Stephen, you'd have to is ask it... them. <laughs> well, give, give me your opinion. What, you, you clearly have a huge a depth of experience, a breadth of experience. Has there been one thing that you, you know that there's, there's a particular thing you can put on the table for someone that says, hey, look, I can do this? Or is there a way that you communicate that? Especially now as an independent freelancer, there, there's some element to it that people, it's not just what you know. It's not just how, how you work, but people have to kind of like you um, because they're hiring you. And a lot of the work I do uh, involves uh, really coaching and facilitating teams. And if, if they don't like your style, they're not going to want to work with you. Um, I'm sure plenty of people haven't called me. Maybe they don't like my style, but I, I, I try to so a few things that I try to do are I try to defer to local knowledge and expertise as much as possible, um, meaning that uh, I, especially because I, you know, I happen to be American, I don't want to be that uh, type of person who goes in presumptively and telling people answers that nobody even asked questions about and that kind of stuff. I don't mean to imply that that all Americans do that at all, but they're there is a feeling in many parts of the world where these West, high-paid Western consultants come in and start explaining how it's done back home, mm -hmm. you know? And I, I'm very careful to, to avoid that. Listen, having, having native English communication skills has been very important. A lot of the work that I've done has involved a lot of coaching and mentorship. But at the end of the day, there was probably a document that came out of it that either had to sell itself in the sense of raising money or influencing policy or preserving a department. 
you know, and, and, and that had to be written quite well. And I think that would, that element would be tougher for someone without, you know, native English communication skills. So that's happenstance and luck that I happen to have that. But plenty of great people are doing similar stuff to what I do that are that are not with native English skills. So, so um, what about what is it about? You mentioned at the beginning of this of our of our discussion, you did fundraising. You were, you know you recently helped somebody raise twenty million dollars. You you built a strategy. You um, helped start an environmental movement. Is there? something that you're offering to your clients right now that connects those? Uh, it may be, as you said, uh, mentorship. It may be that native English uh, you know, refinement, that, that ability to, to look at a document and say, hey, let's tweak it in this way. Is there one or two things that you, you know everybody's looking for, or is it really yes. just a smorgasbord? Yeah, actually, there's a few. So um, when, when somebody leaves Congress... Uh, they're often hired by in the by the private sector for governmental relations because they know from the other side how their former colleagues think and and, and act. I, I, you know, I spent ten years working from the donors' perspective, and donors like to hire me because they know that I understand their needs and what needs to be done, and and I can do that well. At the same time, civil society organizations love to work with me because they they need to communicate effectively with donors. And they know I know how to speak donor language. Not only speak, but they know I'm also, you know, fairly well networked throughout the entire donor sector, not just, just, um, you know, in Hungary where I am, but, but globally. So I'm an effective advocate. I've written proposals for organizations to donors that I then went and spoke to the donors immediately after or even sometimes during to make sure that they fully understood what was going on. I was very transparent about everything always. But, um, you know, I was able to raise a lot of funding for organizations because I know how to, uh, you know, I, I understand both sides. A lot of young people want to start out and want to do consulting work. And all the time I get this question, how, how, you know, how can you help me become a consultant? And I tell them I would have been a horrible, horrible consultant if I didn't have, you know, a really lengthy career where I could build up both a network of people that would hire me and also, moreover, the substantive knowledge that you could then sell back to, to people. Because why would anyone hire a consultant fresh out of graduate school in this field? What? Now that you've made the leap to being a freelancer, you no longer have the trappings of the open society for, you know, making sure your paycheck shows up, making sure that, you know, you your their flights get booked, those kinds of things. How do you administer your freelance work? Is there any particular tricks or tips that, that you would share with others who are, are making the leap right now to, to going independent about how to get that done? Definitely get used to a lifestyle where all those things that you mentioned are taken care for you, taken care. And now I definitely have to think about those things a little bit more, but it's not as challenging as it seems. For example, um, a lot of the organizations that I work with, they take care of my travel for me. Basically, I get an e-ticket in the mail from them. I, I still have a lot of former colleagues who, when I need large-scale printing done, do that for me. I, like going back to the thing I said before, once you build up your own infrastructure of people and experts and everything, um, you can still get a lot more done because you have have that network to help you with lots of stuff. I I, I call 
I just did a, a big project for a Canadian institute. They were interested in working in six new countries in Eastern Europe, Central Asia. They had never worked in this region, although they're working everywhere else in the world. And they hired me to uh, do a scoping exercise to inform them and help them plan how they could roll out their operations to these six new countries. Luckily, I, and, and that's the reason they hired me, I was able to call up my personal contacts in all the countries and, and get tons of information because of that network that I accumulated previously. But in terms of like practical day-to-day stuff, I miss certain things. I miss benefits. I miss predictability and stability. Things may, may be going great, but, you know, in four months from now, what if, what if no one comes calling? And, you know, th- there's, there's definitely advantages at the same time. I'm a, I'm a new father. Uh, I don't travel as much as I used to. Um, so I, I'm in a little bit more control of my own schedule. I get to be home with the family more. I do at least 50, 60% of my work out of my home office. If I want to take off, you know, for three, five, 12 days, I don't have to tell anybody or seek anybody's approval. Just do that. The downside, of course, is it's unpaid time. So like everything in life, there's there's a lot of pros and cons to to being independent and being, you know, employed. So what does it a typical day look like with the obvious caveat there's no typical day are you mostly on the phone are you juggling two or three different projects are you on an airplane i i usually work on about four projects at the same time occasionally it's it's less and occasionally it's more and, and occasionally that, we... let, let me interject there is that because that's just better for you because you like to you know keep a variety and keep things going or is is it uh, you know is it a financial decision to make sure that you've got enough income coming in it's a little of everything for example just to go back to this canada project uh, i was sort of at the mercy uh, of of so i was setting up interviews with people in in a bunch of countries and th- that was sort of at, at, at their you know, ability to, to speak with me. So if I didn't have other projects to work on while I was waiting for those interviews to take place, it would be kind of downtime and wasted time. And a lot of stuff is like that. For example, last week I wrote a proposal to USAID for one of my partners in, in the Balkans. And whenever I sent them back a draft to review, that would have been downtime if I couldn't flip to another project. So uh, that that's why I tend to bunch up, you know, things at the same time. Only twice has that come back to haunt me where I had two massive deadlines literally the same week and I was doing 20-hour days for for like 10 days straight. Uh yeah, I mean th- the good thing is that I I was transparently charging for that because I just bunched up multiple days into a shorter condensed space so they were profitable days. But that that was really tough. And, and in retrospect, I would have rather have turned down one of those, at least, um, if I had realized that the deadlines were going to be so acutely intertwined. And, and what was a typical day for me? Um, usually, usually I'm, I'm on the I, I'm I'm drafting most of the day. Uh, I'm on Skype a lot. But I also last year I worked with uh, two foundations over the course of four months each to develop their their upcoming four year strategies. And I was back and forth between Budapest and Tirana and and Pristina almost every other week for months. And that was more of brainstorming and facilitating group discussions and meeting with experts, that kind of stuff. So a typical day is a little hard to define. I also work 
out of two offices here in Budapest on the environmental project. That's with the EU CHAM. It's a chamber of commerce. Um, I work with them a few hours per week, and I work uh, on a bunch of projects with my former office at the Open Society Foundations, and I, I spend some of the time in those offices. Two more questions. You've already, you've sure. already touched on, on one of them. You, you mentioned that you, you spend a lot of time on Skype. You're, uh, you know, you're doing a lot of drafting. Are there any particular tools other than those that you've that you sort of rely upon every day for success, um, either to communicate or to make sure that you can create the document that wins? No, not really. I mean, like I said, the biggest tool really, it's not the right word, but it, it would be the network that, that I have. I can pretty much find anybody who can give me the information I might need at the drop of a hat. And, and that saves a lot of time. So as you mentioned earlier, you, you often have people calling you for advice. And this is something that we ask every guest here in terms of reference. If someone's about to you know, graduate from university or with a graduate degree, or someone's looking to make a transition into this space of development and aid work, what's the, what's the either one or two pieces of critical advice you say, you got to do this? Good. I'm glad you gave me the option to give you two, because I always have two pieces of advice for the, those kind of people. First is, which you'll see reflected in my story today, is talk to everybody. Be gregarious. You know, you mentioned that, yeah, I was in the right place at the right time, but plenty of people never know that they were in the right place at the right time because they didn't speak to the right person. So, it, 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 you know, just especially if you're looking for a job, um, it's, I think it's much easier almost to find a job by networking than it is to sit around and send out 500 applications to people who, you know, computers are going to scan their CVs and all that kind of stuff. Second thing is a lot of times people come to me and they say, I I'm interested in the international sphere. I'd like to work in international development. What do you advise? And I say, do you have a, a niche area that you're interested in or a target region or some, some kind of topical area that you want to focus on? And most people don't. They're, they're kind, and, and, and I understand why. They're kind of open to everything at that point. But if somebody comes to me and says, even if it's not their first choice, but at least if they offer me something concrete, like I'd like to work with a think tank or I'd like to work on energy policy, then I could start concretely thinking about my network and seeing who I might introduce them to. Without that level of concreteness, it's very hard to give advice to somebody. It's sort of a fluffy conversation. So I would, I would encourage people uh, looking for jobs in this space to talk to lots of people, don't be shy, and to, even, even if they, they don't have a priority area, make one or two up for the sake of a conversation because otherwise it's very hard to get anywhere. Scott, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes.